Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Well, we sit here with less than three weeks to go at the end of this legislative session. <laughs> Fresh poll out last week. Lots going on. We met with Darren Shaw last week uh, for the podcast, talked about some aspects of the poll, as is often the case with Darren. We leveraged his interest in and expertise mm-hmm. in national politics and particularly 2024. We want to return to the poll results as a point of departure again this week. But I you know, I think it makes sense for us to focus on two issues that are very much in the news in Texas in the last few days, um, you know, neither of which are especially pegged to good news. Uh, and, and these are issues that are likely to continue to to be front and center in the next few weeks. One is gun safety and gun safety legislation and, and interesting turn that that's taken in the last few days in the Texas legislature, which we'll talk about. And the perennial issue of the border as um, we look at uh, the ending of the Title 42 program coinciding, seems to me, with the expected seasonal surge in, in migrant traffic at the border. So we have polling data on both of those. So let's let's just jump in. Um, now, uh, so we'll start with guns. Uh, it's been another terrible couple of weeks of gun violence in mm-hmm. Texas. You know, I don't know how many times we've started the podcast with that particular phrase, but such as it is, a little over a week ago, man in Cleveland, Texas, shot and killed a family of five that precipitated a several-day manhunt. Uh, suspect is now in custody, but that you know, generated tons of national news and attention in the state. And, you know, we might circle back to that, also wound up intersecting, at least briefly, <laughs> with the issue of immigration. Right. And then this past weekend, of course, nine people... Uh, were killed, several other injured, several others injured in a mass shooting at an Allen, Texas mall. That was over this past weekend. We're recording on Tuesday morning. Now that was all punctuated yesterday with a, you know, I think it's fair to say somewhat unexpected turn of events uh, in the House Select Committee on Community Safety, which moved Representative King's HB 2744 out of committee on an eight to five vote. And that's the bill Written, I think, in close cooperation in, uh, with the survivors of the Uvalde massacre and uh, in mind. And and this is a bill that would raise the age to purchase or own certain kinds of semi-automatic style weapons from 18 to 21. Um, and, and that is a bill, I, I you know, before we get into it, that I would add is pretty carefully and narrowly crafted. Extremely. You know, Representative King, I think, took a lot of input and is a you know, pretty accomplished legislator and wrote that bill with important carve-outs for veterans, for example. Mm -hmm. 
and with a pretty narrow scope on what kind of weapons you would be right. limiting access to or you know raising the age of, right. of, of legal access to. Now, in the interim between us, this this shooting happened in the interim between us releasing the poll and or collecting the data and releasing the poll and and this discussion now. And in the interim, one of the things that got the most attention in last week's poll were a couple of items that we had on raising the age of legal access and red flag laws, right? Yeah, I think I should flag, because you just sort of made a point implicitly, I'll make it explicitly too, that we collected this data before this most yeah. sort of recent spate of shootings. You know, I think the Cleveland uh, mass shooting had occurred while we were in the field. Yeah. But and we'll kind of talk about this. We wouldn't necessarily suspect that to influence the results that much, to be quite honest. Um, but the uh, the mass shooting in Allentex definitely happened after we were in the field. So what we found, you know, we didn't we didn't pull a ton of you know, gun control measures because honestly, they're not really, uh, you know, in on the agenda for the most part. I mean, that's where we certainly saying. didn't seem that way when we were writing questions. No, and the reason that we asked them was simply, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, for sort of two kind of combined reasons. One, you know, it's still the first session after the Uvalde mass shooting, and this was one of the, you know, certainly raising the age of to purchase a, a firearm was one of the main proposals that came out in response. Uh, to that tragedy, but also in addition to, you know, I think measuring responses to a bunch of sort of the, the legislative agenda as laid out by the GOP majority, we also wanted to touch it based on some of a few of the major issues that Democrats have been pushing this session, even if we don't expect them to move very much. Right. right. And broadly speaking, well, not even broadly speaking, and, and gun safety, gun violence, if you combine that also with school safety, an issue really triggered by it, really are you know issues that are very salient to Democrats. Exactly. So what do we find? So so first and foremost, you know, we found uh, three quarters of vo voters support raising the age to legally purchase any firearm. So not even these sort of specific carve outs. Right. That's how about we phrase the, the question bill, as right. kind of a catch all. Right. Any firearm from 18 to 21 years of age. So again, 76 percent of Texas voters, 91 percent of Democrats, but also 64 percent of Republicans. So about two thirds of Republicans. 82% of independents. Another item we asked about was sort of the concept of, of a red flag law, which we talk about in terms of allowing courts to require a person who's determined to be a risk to themselves or others to temporarily surrender guns in their possession. This was supported by a similarly large share of Texas voters, 72%, 88% of Democrats, 64% of Republicans, uh, and 57% of independents. And so that was sort of the big kind of, you know, Check in. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's interesting because this these results, you know, ended up receiving a lot of attention in in the press. Having said that, they're not really new results for us. These aren't right. even really big shifts in terms of the numbers. In fact, they're not really shifts in terms of the sh you know share of voters who support these kinds of you know proposals as we've tested over time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting. You know, I mean, I. You know, I've gone. You know, we've both done this, and we've gone back and yeah. looked at the trend here, and it is interesting. I mean how you judge the movement among mm -hmm. Republicans. Because on one hand, you know, I'm pretty sure that every time we've looked and, you know, we've we've written about this, it's not as if every time there's a shooting, we see a definite corresponding shift in favor of more, no. you know, gun control, right. to use the old school term, or gun safety measures, et cetera. Um, that said, you know, in going back, I, I was talking to a reporter over the weekend and went back and looked at, you know, the item on gun safety that will, mm. or not gun safety, the item on whether more guns make, you know, people think more guns make people more or less safe, right? right? Or make the, the country more or less safe. You know, and there is a, 
you know, how should I put this? A noticeable, if not determinative shift in Republican attitudes. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've written about this before and there's some, you know, I mean, I like you know, pat ourselves on the back, whatever. But there's some good stuff on the Texas Politics Project website that really kind of goes through gun attitudes and, and lays out the case for why a particular mass shooting doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, lead to big shifts in public right. opinion. And, and, the, and the result you're pointing to, I think, is one of the key results that we found over time, which is that, you know, underlying, I think, widespread acceptance for nibbling around the edges of legal gun ownership. And again, you're, you're not talking about taking away legal gun ownership in most cases. You're talking about adding in some additional hurdles, some safeties, some checks. And just like, you know, I mean, it's a weird, con you know, I just can't help but con compare to this. You know, if you think about years, if not decades of the right nibbling around abortion exceptions saying, well, we can just kind of, well, can't we have a two day waiting period? <laughs> you know, can't we just, just, and and the truth is, is if you look at public opinion data, generally you do find you know, around these sort of, you know, what people, Politicians colloquially call, you know, common sense legislation right. or well, Co surely common sense X. Yes. Yeah, sure, surely we should all agree X. And you'd see that around abortion. You'd see in the data, you know, you wouldn't see a huge amount of Democratic opposition to say an extra day waiting period or to notifying parents or things like that. And I think the same thing is true with Republicans with respect to a lot of these gun laws. Just like in abortion, there's sort of a core underlying orientation towards the role that guns play in society that creates, I think, a huge amount of this tension, especially for leadership when it comes to sort of figuring out both politically what's palatable, right, in terms of moving gun laws forward, but also what they're willing to even defend. And that comes to this item that you, that you raise here about, you know, essentially, you know, do do Texans think more guns means more, mean more, you know, put simply, means more safety, essentially, you know, the sort of, if they're good guys with guns, that'll deter bad guys, right. that'll stop bad guys, et cetera. Or does it just mean there's a bunch more guns around and there's more of these kinds of shootings? Yeah, it's kind of a you know it's kind of you know evaluated an almost marketized approach to guns. Right. right, and and Democrats overwhelmingly you know usually three quarters or more will say yeah that just leads to to less safety right? right there's more guns less safe. Republicans you tend to find about in the neighborhood of two thirds, but to your point, going down a little bit over time would say no more guns leads to more safety. And so that's why I think, you know, in the wake of these things, you find this sort of, you know, on the one hand calls for, you know, clamping down on, on, on guns, you know, especially on the left and on the right, when talking, especially about things like, you know, so these sorts of things you think about, you know, we'll have more, you know, we need more good guys with guns or in the case of schools, maybe we need to arm teachers. Maybe we need to right. arm, you know, retired police officers on the school campuses. And this is fully in line with. Yeah. I think where the attitudes are, but it also leads a lot of people to say, well, wait a minute, though. But how do Republicans also say they want to, you know, again. And that has been an active discussion at the legislature yeah, and that's been a very, time, and, and where that, you've intersected, you know, basically school shootings, gun policy. Right. And I think that's sort of, and, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Cru, you know Senator Cruz almost kind of walked into this in some ways a few weeks ago because he posted this this uh, meme to, I don't know what you call it really, but I mean, something somewhere on some social media. I don't know what you'd call it at this point, but a card, whatever you want to call it, yeah. basically saying, hey, you know, banks have armed guards. Why, you know, why don't schools? And there was a, you know, a, a big mass murder at a bank, which a lot of people sort of pointed out as sort of a, I don't even know what you'd say, a gotcha. Yeah. Or whatever. But ultimately, you know, these things are all pretty consistent, but it's but it does point to why you see a lot more sort of discussion about like, well, should we arm more teachers than should we take guns away from more people? Right. Right. But to, to the broader point here, I think what you're starting to see is the impact of accumulation. 
Well, that's what I was going to say. I was right. thinking about, we, you know, we've been looking for... And I think, you know, again, we, again, we've polled, you know, yeah. much... This, this is not a, a punctuated equilibrium case. No, right? and we've and we've polled before mass shootings and right after mass shootings and sort of shown the consistency of these attitudes. And you don't necessarily see, you know, again, big shifts within even a tragedy as horrible as Uvalde. But when you look at this over the course of three years, five years, even seven to 10 years, like we have and have been doing, you are seeing a softening of sort of an absolutist position right. on this. And the absolutist position in this case isn't that like, no, there can't be any restrictions on guns because that's ridiculous. We see in the data that nobody believes, I mean, almost nobody right. believes that. But what we're seeing is a softening in the position that guns don't have anything to do with this problem. Right. And, you know, I mean, you know, the collision between the general attitude and the specific incremental adjustment is really just striking here and and I think makes it very tricky to interpret. I mean, I you know, because I think, you know, you can see this glass is half, if, you know, classic kind of half full, half empty, in some ways, literally half. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the last time we asked about whether, tech, you know, gun laws in Texas should be more or less strict after all of the legislation that we've seen mm -hmm. in recent years really recent, after the 2021 session the, and the and the restrict in the and the lessening of the restrictions required to carry a handgun in most public places right but even before that i mean oh, that yeah. that was that did build incrementally i mean we saw campus carry before mm -hmm. that we saw yeah you know relaxation and concealed carry laws etc you know even after all that so after all that basically in February 2023, half of Republicans said that gun laws should be left the way they are now. Yep. Right. Now, that is adjacent to, and maybe probably not in that poll, because I don't think we asked in this poll. I'd have to go back and check. But but that is coming at roughly the same time mm -hmm. as we're seeing, you know, the gun safe, you know, the, the guns make people, you know, more guns makes people more safe, right? right? In a little higher than that, but in that range, you know, high 50s yep. in that same time period. But also three quarters or, or two thirds roughly, I guess, where we are with Democrats, a little less than that, I suppose, 57%. Still like in favor of these incremental proposals that we're talking about. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, on that, and on that strictest measure, I mean, you know, the reality is to the extent we've seen movement on that, that's anything other than incremental uh, it's usually been after a session in which the legislature has significantly loosened gun access, and it's usually been a lot of movement among Republicans. Right. And so what we find is that, you know, over the years, you know, as, as the legislature has sort of taken steps to, to, to ease gun access, you see, you know, one, I would say marginal support among Republicans in most cases for most of those over the years, I think, back over the polling. But then after the poll, you see this, you know, it's called this thermostatic response where the public says, oh, OK, you did it. Good. Let's let's just adjust back now or let's stay where we are. This is good. Right. It's good. I'm comfy. But, you know, now I think a lot of voters are having, you know, even I think, you know, those with relatively favorable views towards gun ownership are needing to kind of come to terms with the fact that you can't turn on the news within a given week without seeing something and the thing, you know, seeing some, some sort of terrible tragedy. And the reality is, you know, as we enter the summer, it's not like these incidents are likely to, you know, I would say recede or, or you know, decrease in frequency. I mean, I think, you know. Uh, Representative Wu yesterday, Gene Wu of Houston, during the Democratic press conference earlier in the day on, on gun violence kind of in the lead up to, I think, some of the precursor to the movement that led to that vote to, to advance the, the bill that would raise the age to own certain semi-automatic firearms brought up, you know, said something I think that really kind of crystallized, you know, I think, a, a, I mean, it's a question. And I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> putting a pin in this, right? But it's an interesting question. He says, you know, you know, Americans don't, you know, don't feel safe anymore. Right. They don't feel safe in their churches. They don't feel safe in their schools. They don't feel safe, uh, 
you know, shopping. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, we're working on a piece right now and there's a line in it to quote ourselves, which is, <laughs> which is really just, woo. Yeah. Is this thing on? No. <laughs> but, you know, it says, you know, I mean, there's an assumption here, right? I think in America, reasonably in a lot of places that when you send your kids to public schools, that the teachers and the students are going to be safe. And I think to the extent that like, you know, that can't be taken as a, as a de facto truth at this point in time, I think that's a real, I think that's a real shaking of the foundation of some of these, uh, some of these ideas. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think, and, and, you know, as we, and yet, yeah, and yet, you know, there are a lot of cross currents for this. So, so let's, you know, let's, so, so, you know, to bring this to bear on where we are at the moment, um, so Tracy King's bill voted out of committee yesterday mm-hmm. with two Republican votes. At pains. Very surprising. I'm sorry? At great pains. At, yeah, at great pains to, you know, as we've seen on social media, um, to sort of explain those votes. Nonetheless, the bill has now moved and moved more than people had expected. I'm, I'm pretty sure nobody expected that they were even going to get a vote, let alone right. that if they got the vote, they would get some Republican votes and the bill would move. Now. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where the reality of where yeah. we are in the legislative process really, you know, kind of sets in and has to be mentioned. Right. You know, that bill now has to be heard by the calendars committee, which is meeting fairly frequently now because of where we are in the session, uh, to be scheduled for debate. It has to be put on a house calendar. That's going to have to happen by Thursday. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's going to be, ha- it actually has to happen before Thursday because Thursday is the last day in which the house can he- can hear House bills Professor for the Henson, second reading. Professor Henson, I have a question. Okay, hopefully I have an answer. So if it if it does get scheduled by the counters committee for a hearing in the full house, does that mean that it'll be heard by the full house? I think probably, <laughs> but it will still be vulnerable to procedural challenge. And it could be procedural challenge to directly or even just a casualty of other challenges. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, once we get down, you know, say it's on the calendar for Thursday, that midnight deadline is pretty hard. Right. Right. And so, you know, the chances of this bill getting out of the house are still exceedingly slim. Pretty small. Yeah. Right. And 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 remember that there will be you know, this gets us into, you know, some things that I've, you know, for the insiders, you've probably heard some of this or maybe noticed this that you know, there's a lot of discussion in the community right now in the capital community in the among the professionals and the engaged and stakeholders about how the rules are being enforced in the house. Mm-hmm. Without going too much in the history, it does seem like, and we need to look this up and you know, hopefully somebody on Twitter will do this for yeah, us or great. we'll figure out a way to make the time to do this. But it does seem like the rule, the, the readings of the rules have been pretty tight, yeah. particularly in a couple of areas. And we've seen a lot of bills pulled down or go down on points of order directly, right? And so, you know, I think what this does is really opens up the possibility that this bill could move mm-hmm. by a leadership that is probably ambivalent at best about its chances or could be reading this a lot of different ways, right. but then be vulnerable to a point of order like many other big bills have been this uh, uh, this session. We've seen it, you know, the, the, the bill on supportive care for trans kids mm-hmm. has been pulled from the floor twice under threats of points of order, mm-hmm. right? And so I find it very likely 
that as this bill moves, should this bill make it onto a calendar in the House, yeah. a lot of energy will be going into scrutinizing every single word related to this bill, every move that it's made in order to find points of order to to get it pulled off the calendar on the floor. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that this is really setting up perfect for something scheduled late in the process that at least turns the screws on some Democrats who might want to chub, who might want to slow down the process right. in the final stretch. You know, you put this near the end of the counter. It's like, hey, if you want to, hey, Democrats killed this. You yeah, know, I mean, I there's think a lot you, of ways you can play this. Yeah, there. no, I mean, I think that's a good point that the general, you know, mood that we expect as we go into the, you know, you know, really starting this minute. Yeah. If not, you know, it's already kind of right. going is that. It's going on right now. We you start beginning to feel like it's a zero sum game in terms of time. Mm-hmm. Right. That every time, every, every bit of time you spend on one thing is time you might not get to spend on something else. Right. And something else that matters. And so, you know, you mentioned chubbing, which is, you know, the, the, you know, the term for talking a lot on the floor and raising procedural questions, et cetera, just to burn time to make it harder to to get to everything that, that perhaps some people want to get to get to things that people want to get to or usually with some kind of specific target. Democrats have periodically used this as have kind of dissidents within the Republican Party, mm-hmm. you know, to simply, you know, reduce the volume of work that the majority can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're already beginning to see that some. Um, but I think there's just enough you know, there's just enough going on that a broad enough group of people want that is kind of the theme of you know, right. the, the piece that you were referencing earlier that we're working on that should be out later. By the time you hear this podcast, it'll be out, barring disaster of some sort, small scale disaster of yeah, some I was sort. Say, like- um, and so I think that, you know, that is a real factor here. And that, you know, that's going to cut a, diff- a couple of different ways, as you say. So it's going to be a very... You know, interesting few days as we watch, you know, the House move towards this big deadline on Thursday. And, and for those of you that are interested in these deadlines, you can you can find these the calendars that have all these deadlines at the Texas Legislative Library and also on the TLO site. Actually, what we'll do is when we post the podcast, yeah. we'll we'll throw that that last couple of you know the calendar the last month deadlines on that post so that you can just grab it there if you can't find the others. Okay. So with the time we got left, let's move it at least briefly. And, and it's probably a little less complicated and immediate <laughs> in some ways, at least maybe. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the border and border security. So, you know, as I said at the outset, we're about to see the expiration COVID or- Title you know, 42. Yeah, the COVID arrangements under Title 42 that it's worth highlighting that enabled both the Trump and the Biden administrations to turn people back at the border with, you know, in it, basically with asylum claims. At best, yes, with at best streamlined uh, administrative, you know, right. procedures. That is going to end this week. In advance of that, Governor Abbott uh, yesterday announced the deployment of the new Texas Tactical Border Force to the Texas-Mexico border, closely paraphrasing from the governor's yep, press release, that's right. in order to respond to the ending of Title 42. You know, and this is just more resources to the border. At the same time, President Biden has ordered a, a con, you know a U.S. military contingent to go down to the border. Careful to say that they would not be participating in direct interdiction, but were there to su- provide support. This is, you know, obviously being seen as too little too late by Governor Abbott and and Republicans more generally. 
But, you know, the border and border security has also you know, sort of been an element, uh, is an element of what's going on at the legislature, but it's a testament, I would argue, it's a testament to the durability and the centrality of immigration and border security to Republican attitudes in the state, Republican politics, and, you know, we're a broken record on this. Um, but it's one of the few major policy areas right now where the GOP majority hasn't been struggling to find some kind of consensus. And we've said it on the podcast before, bears repeating, there was an increase in funding for border security after the significant, you know, I would say historic increases mm -hmm. in border security spending over the last few years. Um, they, there were increases in both budgets, no disagreement. Everybody's pretty happy, at least in the Republican majority with this. Um, and our and our data repeatedly show why, right? Yeah, I mean, it, about sixty percent of Republicans routinely uh, say that immigration or border security is the number one issue facing the state. The only you know sort of punctuation or, or sort of deviation from that, I should say, you know, happened at the very early onset of COVID. You know, we've asked two times during this legislative session in an open-ended question what the legislature should focus on, and the plurality, near majority, of Republicans offered up deal with immigration or the border. Um, and, you know, to your point, you know, even throughout this entire period of increase, you know, not even marginal increase in spending, but significant increases in border security spending and really attention uh, and effort, the share of Republicans who say the state is spending too little on border security, if anything, is inching upward. And the reality is the end of Title 42, yeah. despite, again, codifying in the budget this huge amount of money that's been put towards the border sort of in other through other means kind of in the interim. You know, it's likely to be met, you know, in some ways with a, at a boy, but what, what next? Yeah. And I mean, that's sort of the interesting, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, the, the, the centrality of immigration and border security in some ways, you know, really gives Republicans something that Democrats, you know, could really only just only hope for, which is to say, okay, if we just do this one thing yeah, in some way, shape or form, and the truth is this one thing that's in many ways, utterly intractable, but as long as we make efforts on this one area then, you know, we can go back to our voters and say, see what we did? We did this. And, you know, for most Republican voters, they say, good, great. Yeah. You know, and then they can go on and say, well, what about, you know, this, that, and the other? But right. but th this is the main thing that really needs to be addressed. I yeah, mean, and, and the fallback on what you might, you know, within the universe of Republican attitudes, um, you know, the one possible objection is like, this is just, you know, too much money. Now, look, Obviously, we've not seen any evidence of that. No. But to the extent that we do see it, yeah, we've seen the opposite. You know, the fallback is a pretty easy one right now yeah. in terms of saying, well, you know, what can I tell you? I'm with you. I'm with you, but, sister. But, you know, as long as Joe Biden's in the White House. Right. As long, you as, know, the federal, well, and as, long as the federal government is failing its responsibilities, right, just, then so be it. Right. You know, we've got to spend more to combat the open border policy of, you know, et cetera, well, et cetera. So. You know, and, you know, and, and the politics of the moment of this yeah, the are, of them are, very interesting. are kind of interesting. So, I mean, you know, to use the, the kind of horrible, you know, cable news metaphor, but it's useful here. You know, the split screen yesterday between what was going on in right. the House and in the legislature writ large and what Governor Abbott was doing was pretty remarkable. So, you know, in the last, you know, the split screen is on one hand, you're seeing the House voting out these gun bills in a very, you know, moving a gun bill in a very dramatic kind of development. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the legislature generally still 
kind of locked up over the big issues, some right. of which are very important to the governor and the governor's, you know, ex- invested a lot of political capital. Good example of that would be ESA slash vouchers, mm-hmm. which, you know, still seems to be, you know, a- at an impasse in terms of what's going on in the House. And right. it's an open question whether what the governor has been doing for the last couple of months in terms of you know, putting pressure on House members, frankly, to mm-hmm. to vote for vouchers. Um, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but one would be forgiven. Let's put it this okay. way. One might be forgiven for thinking that the timing of the coming of, of the end of Title 42 and a expected surge at the border kind of comes at a good time for Governor Abbott. Uh, no, I would say I was going to say it's an excellent. It's <laughs> I mean, like I mean it's it's a gift in a lot of ways because you know I mean t- to just to, just to flesh out a little bit more what you're talking about here. I mean right now, legislature is locked up over how they're going to move forward with a property tax reduction that they have promised and promised repeatedly throughout the yeah. 2022 campaigns and into the session. Uh, you know, I mean, to this, to the, you know, the voucher bill, I mean, the Senate has moved and the House is really not even, there's not even really a competing proposal right now. That, right. I mean, it's almost just locked up. Uh, you know, there's big, big differences over how, how the state is going to improve the reliability of the electric grid. There's, uh, you know, similar disagreements over how, you know, they're going to address school safety. So the fact that, you know, a potential summer surge of migrants at the border at this point that's going to dominate coverage, especially in, in right-wing media that's going to be right. you know, the primary source of information for Republican primary voters, could not come at a better time, assuming the legislature is not going to be able to be successful on all of those things. Right. Not going to say they're not going to be successful on any of those things, or all of them, but I think it would be surprising, given where they are right now, to see a bunch of compromises all of a sudden emerge at the 11th hour. Right. And so, yeah, and it's just a very open question, you know, I mean, we... You know, we did a a, a post and, and a podcast, I think, of you know, a few weeks ago about you know what is going on in the Republican Party, the mm-hmm. role of Republican primary voters, and to draw these two things together. I mean, you know, the difference between what you're looking at on immigration and border security, which, mm-hmm. as we've said a million times on the podcast, is the great Republican unifier, mm-hmm. and even what we were looking at in in the gun data a few minutes ago. I mean, there's still 25% or so, 24%, if you want to be exact, uh, of Republican voters who still say that gun laws should be less strict. Right. So we emphasized the movement on the other side last time. But as we talk about where some of the difficulties are and, and you know, the kind of, you know, essentially the, I was going to say the tyranny, maybe that's not quite right, but- mm-hmm. You know the preoccup. You know the preoccupation of the under. I'll put it this way: the almost under, fairly understandable preoccupation of Republican incumbents with Republican primary voters. Mm-hmm. You know, really is kind of at play in both of these, but they manifest in different ways, right? Yeah. Because the distribu- because of the distribution of public opinion being different on these two issues. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about. You know, and we've looked at this in great depth. You know, the difference in intensity on some of the on immigration and border security issues is not that great when you break it out by ideological intensity, right. party ad- intensity of party identification. You do see more variance on guns. Yeah, I mean, it's really you know the thing is, I was thinking about this yesterday when the House moved that bill, and you know, it's just. 
I was saying how difficult it is, and I was thinking in particular the idea of defending these things. And you know, so just just imagine for a second, you know, the House ends up bringing this bill to the floor. Let's say they cobble together all the Democrats and enough Republicans to pass, you know, this bill that raises the age. Let's say for some inexplicable reason, the Senate decides they're going to pass it and make Abbott deal with it and veto it because he signaled he's going to veto it. Let's say he doesn't veto it for some reason. Now the state become gets sued, right, right. By, by a Second Amendment group. So the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, is now going to be put in the position of defending a state law that creates a barrier to access to guns for some people. Right. Like, if any of this sounds crazy to you, I mean, think about the, the, the stacking of things that would need to happen. Right. And the reality is, 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 is none of that is, is reasonable. I mean, the governor's clearly signaled that he's not going to, you know, he, he probably would not sign this. And even, yeah, he's on the record pretty firmly as saying that he thinks that it's, un, it's unconstitutional. Now you can set aside, you know, the hypocrisy of that statement around other sets of laws and whether that seems to matter sure. at all, blah, blah, blah. But he's made very clear where he stands on it. The lieutenant governor's made very clear, I think, where he stands on the idea of gun laws and what direction they should go. In. And again, yeah. there's no there's no elected official in the state who's going to even come close to defending one of these laws should it get to that point. And so. Right. I mean, I, you know, as, as, as you know, we were talking before the podcast, you know, one can come up with, you know, several very path dependent right. scenarios of what might happen here. It does still seem like the most likely outcome is this is that this bill does not get out of the house. Mm -hmm. um, but in, you know, the broad scope of things, as we've said many times in this, you know, it, it's easy to be myopic and 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 look, in some senses being myopic is is what you need to do. You know, you need to see what's right in front of you at right. certain points. In the longer term, it probably will be significant if this bill doesn't pass, which is the most likely outcome, but it will be significant that it got out of committee this time in future sessions, I suspect. I think maybe, <laughs> I don't you know. know, maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical. I mean, I- Well, I, I'm not saying that it guarantees that it's going to, you no, know- No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not even saying that that's not true. I guess, I mean, to me, I think the the the, the best sort of, I don't know, rationale for why that bill moved at all was just totally the immediacy of it. I mean, if you kind of look around, you look at the, the succession of shootings, the succession of mass shootings in Texas in short order. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, I don't. I usually think that this sort of stuff is overplayed, but I'm, I don't think it is here. I mean, I think the the persistence of the Uvalde family is just being there and being relentless about this. It's yeah. just something. Just it's hard for legislators to say, "I'm just going to ignore you" because you can't. Yeah. It's it's totally. I also, you know, I think I also want to give a little credit to to Representative Tracy King, who's been very very yeah. persistent and very smart in the way that he wrote this bill. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, I guess I would say also that I was gonna, I was gonna one thing yeah. that I was just to say. I think the 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 accumulation of again what happened in Allen this weekend and that legislative yeah. deadline hitting when it hit well, that created the momentum to do something. And again, and I don't, you know, again, look, I'm not, you know, I mean, this might sound cynical. I think this is just part of, you know, I think the game of politics that gets played. But it really, ch I mean, if you look at it, you really changed the news cycle if only for a single cycle or two, right. right? Well, I think, you know, what I was going to add to that, and you kind of got to it, but, the, you know, it's just, it's the combination of, you know, that, the information environment, right. and, you know, all of that that you're talking about, as you say, you know, we're always talking about like, you know, well, does something happen? Do people respond? The timing of the El Paso shooting, the timing of these shootings is often not right in the middle of a session right. or during a session. 
the fact that this happened not only during a session, right, with these mobilized groups and in particular the Uvalde right. families, you know, sort of on site, Who already there, ready to, right, yeah, and the fact that you know, frankly. The members that are voting for this, particularly the Republican members on that committee, not to take anything away from them per se, but the calculation has to be there that you can vote this out of committee, say that, you know, you were willing to give it a hearing. This goes for the leadership as well, Mm -hmm. but also rely on the fact that the clock and the calendar are both on your side in terms of where the session are, if what you want is to have it both ways a little bit. Not to put too sharp a point on it, but I think with that, thanks for being here, Josh. As always, help prepping for this. Uh, Thanks again to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Uh, And our team consists of Will today, (laughs) period. So thank you, Will. Um, we'll post this podcast. If you're, if you're hearing this on, on one of the podcast platforms, I, I referenced earlier that we'll, uh, uh, we'll have a post at our website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu that'll also have graphics and links to data that we've talked about, and we've talked about a lot of a lot of things today, as well as um, uh, to that calendar I mentioned. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.